0: The scripture text for this evening's message is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me. bear witness about me that the father has sent me and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me his voice you have never heard his form you have never seen and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words?
1: Let's pray. Father, without you and without Christ, And without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing, nothing of any eternal significance, and nothing that I really want to see happen in this message. And so I invite you to come in power and to open the eyes of the blind and to grant the taste for Christ that presently is either dull or dead and to... Set us free from the bondage to the praise of men. So draw near now, I pray. And do this saving work, this strengthening work, this purifying work, this liberating work. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday when I met with the small group shepherd group leaders to speak to them briefly, The ones who are represented here was the downtown campus small group leaders. I gave them seven reasons for why preaching is not enough. I wanted to persuade them how essential they are in the life of this church and in the normal living out of the Christian life. Peter said that we are to serve one another as good stewards of, of God's varied grace so the body of Christ is to serve each other as stewarding grace grace comes from God and then we steward it we manage it it is given and then we manage it that's the definition of spiritual gifts a spiritual gift is a way of stewarding grace taking it from vertical and making it horizontal And we believe that happens significantly and importantly and normally in settings of small groups. So I gave them seven reasons why preaching is not enough. I believe in what I do. I have given my life to it. And I know that it is not enough. And here are the seven reasons. Number one, the impulse to avoid preaching. Painful growth by disappearing safely into a crowd in corporate worship is very strong. Number two, the tendency toward passivity in listening to a sermon is part of our human weakness. Three, listeners in a big group can more easily evade Redemptive crises. If tears well up in your eyes here, you probably can get out without anybody asking why. But if it happens in your small group, probably not. Not if it's a good small group. They will wonder, can we help? Fourth, listeners in a large group like this tend to neglect efforts of personal application the sermon may strike a nerve of conviction but without someone to press in on where it should go in your life so easy to walk away from that moment of conviction and application number 5 opportunity for questions leading to growth is missing a sermon is not a dialogue nor should it be. However, asking questions is a key to understanding, and if there is no place for it in your life to grow with clarification and application, you cut yourself off from great growth. Number six, accountability for follow-through on good resolves is missing. If someone knows what you intend to do in response to a truth, then you will be more likely to do it. And number seven, prayer support for a specific need, conviction, resolve, goes wanting. I mean, a few people come up to pray after a service, but we can't handle a thousand at the end of a service, and yet small groups can handle a thousand. In fact, they can handle it way better than I can here at the end of a service. How many blessings... We forfeit not being surrounded by five or ten brothers and sisters laying hold on God with us for the thing we so badly need. Those were my seven reasons. I really believe it so that when this is done twice a year and we put out a book like this, we are not playing games. This is life. This is life. If you only know corporate worship in your Christian living and not any kind of smaller togetherness of give and take and query and accountability and love and support and being there and praying, then you are cutting the Christian life in half. And the blessings will be apportioned probably in accord with that choice. So when we move now to John 5, verses 30 to 47, when we move to John 5, I believe that issues are going to be exposed in your life. I know they have been in mine, one in particular, that we need help with outside this room. Sinful inclinations are going to be exposed in every single person in this room. I have zero doubt about that because everybody in this room is guilty of what this text is most concerned about. And therefore, if you have any ears to hear at all, your conscience will be awakened and you will feel bad about some of the ways you are deep down inside owing to your human corruption. You shouldn't deal with that by yourself. Things will be dealt with in my life and call for Kempton and Karen Turner and David and Karen Livingston, and Bud and Lisa Burke, and Mike and Catherine Tong, and my wife to watch for. They're, that's my small group. They should watch for this thing that we're going to get to in a few minutes in me. And if they see a whiff of it, they should tell me. And so I am living in a, in a community of mirrors and, and they should reflect back to me what I really am. When I look at a mirror, ordinary, it's like a carnival mirror. It configures me way better than I am. That doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> carnival mirrors that make you look not weird but better than you are. That's what all of us are like. The only way to know ourselves is for other people. To start giving us feedback. That's the only way to know yourself truly. So here we are in John 5, and I'm going to walk through the text with you, and it will become increasingly pointed because that's the way Jesus develops it. This is verses 30 to 47, we're going to finish the chapter, Lord willing. Maybe, maybe take up a few things at a later message in this same unit, but walk through the whole thing. And I'll show you how it flows. Let's start at uh, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own, Jesus says. So here he's he said this before. He's stressing his perfect harmony with the Father. One step he takes, one step I take. We're always in perfect sync with each other. That's what it means both to be God As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now, instead of picking up on the just part of that, when I read that verse, I thought, oh, this is now going to be a text about the justice of the judgment of Jesus. And there's not a word said about it after this. That's not what he picks up on this verse. What he picks up on in verse 30 is that, He's not seeking His own will, but the will of Him who sent Him. We can talk at another time, perhaps, about why that would guarantee the justice of His judgment, which is what He says. Look at that. My judgment is just because... I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And that theme, not me, but God, not me, but God, not my will, but God's will, not my exaltation, but God's exaltation, not my witness, but God's witness to me. That's what carries through the rest of this entire chapter. That's what he's picked up on. So let's follow him. Verse 31 to 36. Even though he says here now that his own witness is not the decisive witness to himself. He has witnesses. John the Baptist and his God-wrought miracles. Let's read. If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. I'm leaving out two words there just to make it literal. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, that could be God the Father, or it could be John the Baptist. Both of them are referred to in the following verses as witnesses to Jesus. Maybe he intends it to be ambiguous for both of them. Verse 33, you sent to John... And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, human testimony, John's in particular, human testimony is not decisive in who I am. It can be true. And I think he's saying here when he says that you may be saved, it can be helpful. If it helps you over the hump to hear this human testimony, if it helps you move toward me, feel more confident that what I'm saying is true, bless it and may you be saved by it. But it isn't decisive. I don't receive human testimony, meaning I don't receive it as the decisive crediting of my truthfulness. Verse 35 he, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing or you wanted to, re- to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. That's what he meant when he said, I don't receive human testimony. I don't need human testimony. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works That the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So in the end, the final decisive witness to my truthfulness is God's witness. God has given me these works to do, and I keep in step with the Father perfectly so that when I do these works, you are seeing the action of God, and when I speak, you're hearing the words of God, and... God is witnessing to my truthfulness. And now comes the real painful meat of this text, verses 37 to 47. If this is true,
0: I have a witness.
1: Yes, there's a man. Yes, you wanted to hear him, but I have something greater than John. My works are from my father. God is testifying of himself through me here. Now, if that's true, why are the people who supposedly know God best not believing? That's what the rest of this text is about. This text, from here, 37 to 47, is one unremitting indictment of his hearer's unbelief, six of them, one after the other. And then comes near the end a profound explanation for why this is. Why are these people not believing? Here I am. John bore witness. They wanted to hear John. And God is at work in me. I I speak in a way. I act in a way that no human has ever acted or could ever act. Why aren't they believing? Indictment number one. I'm just going to walk you through and show them to you. Indictment number one, verses 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice, you've never heard. His form, you've never seen. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe on the one whom he has sent. They've never heard God. They've never seen God. His word is not in them, and they do not believe in the one whom he has sent. Indictment number one. Number two, verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me. Now that's literally, you don't want to come to me. That's so important. I just wrote down in my list that I keep to send off to the editors of the ESV how to make this translation better. This should be translated. You don't want to come to me because I can't make my point without that literal translation. The question is: why do they refuse? And it tells us they don't want to come. They don't want to come. That you may have life. So you read your Old Testament, which points to me everywhere. Maybe we'll preach a sermon on that in a couple of weeks. We'll preach it. Everywhere this Old Testament is is pointing to me. And the reason you don't come, you don't want to come. That's, That's indictment number two. Indictment number three. Verses 41 and 42. I don't receive glory from people. But I know that you don't have the love of God in you. I don't need human glory to complete me. I don't still the cravings of my heart by needing your praise. But you, you are so full of other things, so many cravings. You don't love God. You don't love Him. That's indictment number three. Number four, verse 43 I have come in my father's name and you don't receive me. If another came in his own name, you will receive him. Indictment number four, you don't receive me. You reject me. You want another kind of Messiah. If one came in his own name, he'd go after him, but you won't come after me. My oh my. We're getting close to the bottom here now, the bottom of our souls, not quite yet, but almost. Why would they go after another Messiah who came in his own name? What's with it with these people? Why would that make a man so attractive to them? It came in his own name. We'll come back to that. That's indictment number four. Number five, verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This has no answer in the text because it's a statement, right? How can you believe? He's not asking for information here. How can you believe who receive glory from one another? Answer, you can't. That's what he's saying. How how do you expect to be able to believe when you're in love with the praise of man? How can you possibly believe if you have a love affair with applause? You can't. Now we're at the bottom. that's the way you are, you can't believe. That's indictment number five. Number six verses 45 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses. On whom you have set your hope. Because If you believed Moses, you'd believe me. That's an amazing statement. For he wrote of me. There it is again. Verse 47. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You won't because you don't. Can you imagine how offensive this was? (gasps) You just cannot imagine. This just gets a man crucified to talk like that. You don't believe Moses, and so you don't believe me. You don't believe his writings, so you can't believe my words. Moses' writings all point to me. Second half of verse 46. For he wrote of me. But you don't see it. You don't see it. Why don't you see it? You won't need me to judge you. Moses is going to judge you. He's going to rise on the Mount of Transfiguration. He knows me. He wrote about me. He saw me. He loves me. He praised me. He's flabbergasted in heaven that you're not believing on me. And he will be a witness against you at the last day. So here's the sum. Verse 38, you don't have God's word in you. You don't believe the one whom he sent. Verse verse 40, you don't want to come to me. Verse 42, you don't have the love of God in you. Verse 43, you don't believe me. Verse 44, you can't believe me. Verse 46, you don't believe Moses and you don't believe me relentless indictment. Here's the question. Why was this gospel written? Somebody want to tell me the verse? Chapter 20, verse 31. By the time we're done, by the time we're done with this series, everybody's going to know that, okay? I'm going there again and again and again. John 20, 31. These things were written that you may believe on Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, Messiah, Son of God, and believing has life in his name. So the point of the book is that you may believe. So what's he up to here? You think he's just throwing words out like he doesn't like these people? These are his kinsmen. He weeps over these people. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. And you would not. He doesn't not like these people. He longs for them. He's going to die for them. What's he up to? Here's what he's up to. He's up to exposing the fact of unbelief and the ground of unbelief so that everybody in this room will know why you don't believe or have a very hard time believing. This is not a Jewish problem. Here's an interesting thing. I mean, You might still think, Oh, why didn't those Jews understand that their Messiah had come? There's not a whiff in this text that the problem with these hearers is uniquely ethnic or religious of any group on the planet. There's only one thing that's clear here. It is human to the core. So don't go the wrong direction here. Like, oh, those people. It's oh, us, blind, hard, proud, praise-loving humans. This gospel is one of the most Jewish in the Bible, and it's always going beneath Jewishness to humanity. Always. It is a very profound book. If you stay on the surface, he's always talking to Jews. Corpse, course, what else is there to talk to? He's a Jew. He's a rabbi. But when he gets down to the issues, it's me he's dealing with. And you. There is one bottom line answer in these verses 37 to 47. Only one for why they didn't. We didn't and have a hard time believing. The bottom is almost reached in verse uh, 40 where it says literally not you refuse to come to me but you don't want to come to me. What we want, fellow humans, has a massive control on what we can believe if you want something badly enough and believing the truth will take it away from you you will see see the truth as error and remain enslaved to your want The blinding power of human wants is absolutely staggering. I have walked through so many divorces, so much adultery, so much stuff with people, and to hear them talk, you think, you are blind as a bat. Can't you see what you're doing? Feels good. Feels good. I don't think God wants me to be unhappy. As a pastor, I, I stand before the power of human wants in a kind of reverence. It is so demonically powerful. What we want exerts over our ability to believe things and see things a staggering influence. So that's almost at the bottom. It's not the bottom yet, but it's powerful. And you need to know that. Jesus is loving you right now. He's helping you understand why you struggle to believe. That's what he's doing right this second. Jesus is talking to you. Why do I have such a hard time believing? Those Christians that, you know, they seem so excited and I don't see it. This is one of the reasons you don't see it. You're enslaved to desires that you feel if you went there, if you totally surrendered, if you totally dove into the pool of grace and life, you'd lose too much, which is, of course, a lie out of hell. It's all gain in the end. But the devil doesn't want you to see that. So let's go to the bottom. And it is in verse uh, 40. One more thing I noticed in my notes here before I go to the bottom. Um, the, The reason Jesus said to Nicodemus Right off the bat. Nicodemus is one of these people, right? He's, he's one of those humans who said, what? Uh, Got to enter into your mother's tummy a second time and be born? This is total blindness. And Jesus says, the, the wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So are everyone who are born in the Spirit. We must be born again. That's what I'm praying. We pray downstairs, God, breathe on this room. Because I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody, including yourself. But the Holy Spirit can sever the root of this controlling desire so that suddenly you're free to be rational and free to see and follow. Now, verse 44 is the, the bottom. And verse 43 shows how it works. What I mean by the bottom is the, the bottom explanation. If you were to take these, seven, these 10 verses and say, what's the bottom explanation of unbelief? It would be verse 44. And if you were to say, now how does that work? It would be verse 43. So let's spend the rest of our time on these two verses. Verse 44, how can you believe, meaning you can't, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You can't believe. Why? Because you love the glory of man, not the glory of God. You love it. It feels so good to be praised, complimented, approved, applauded. It just feels so good. You don't want Jesus because you want praise from man. You want to be the center. You want to be in control. You want to be exalted. You want to be made much of. You want to be somebody. Pick whichever of those seems to fit you best. For me, they all fit perfectly. That's who I am. By nature, I I reverence the fall of man in its power over me. I was born this way. I was spitting out parent controlling commands from the day I was three days old. And I've never changed in my root. Humanity until God moved and killed the old man. And brought a new creature to life who, who hates this and wars on it day after day, which is the only reason I have any perseverance in faith at all. It's because God keeps showing up to help me keep putting that old man to death every day. I don't need to remember 50 years ago what this was like. I just need to remember an hour ago. Or maybe five seconds ago, hoping you're going to like this sermon. And who cares, right? Except that you be saved. It is so subtle. So, verse 43 seems to me pretty clear. You cannot believe if you have a love affair unchecked by the Holy Spirit with the praise of man with human glory and no love affair with the glory of God now how does it work verse 43 I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me if another comes in his own name you'll receive him why You won't receive me, because I'm coming in my Father's name. But if if I came another way, in my own name, without drawing all attention to the Father, I judge as He judges, I walk as He walks, I talk as He talks, I'm all His, everything is for His glory, I'm here to serve Him in my humanity, I have emptied myself of all divine prerogatives, I'm going to be obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You don't want that, do you? Of course they don't. Nobody wants a Messiah like that. Nobody. Unless God moves. Why do we want one who comes in his own name? I'm coming in my own name. I'm the greatest. Because he's just like us. And so he doesn't make us feel guilty. And he's no threat to our ego because we can just get in line and strut like he's strutting. We'll just strut our way to the kingship. It's no threat to have a king who struts. But a humble king makes me feel stupid. Because I love power. I love praise. I love commendation. And Jesus came... And everywhere he went, broken people were drawn, and proud people got up, got their back up. And real, real easy to just see why. He didn't come in his own name, meaning he's just constantly saying, "I'm yours, Father." Nevertheless, it's not my will, but thine be done tonight. That's scary. You follow a Messiah like that, you could get yourself killed. You're gonna always be orienting on Him, not yourself. Can always be seeking the glory of the Father, not your own glory. You're always gonna be serving instead of being served. This is, this is death! And life. And life! Real life. Everlasting life. But the death is real, isn't it? If you know, if you know your corruption, like I am learning mine, you know following Him is deadly how I wish I were a better servant. I'm 63, and I hope I can grow. I hope I can grow down. I don't want to give up. I've been a Christian for all these years. I don't want to say, well, this is it. I've arrived at Piper sanctification top level. That's lousy. I want to go on. I hope you do too. Last question. Why is my love affair with the praise of man so contradictory to the nature of faith that I can't believe if I had it? Why? What is it about faith? What is it about faith? He says, how can you believe? How can you have faith in me? How can you have faith if you have this love affair with glory from man? And he says, you can't. Why not? Why can't I have both? I think I can have both. I think I can love the praise of man and trust Jesus. Why not? I think loving Jesus is a good way to get some praise from men. Like in this church it would be. Why? This is the last question. It's as low as I can take it. I'm I'm working on me mainly here. You can watch. Reason number one. Faith, by its nature in the Bible, gives all glory to God and expects none in itself. For itself. Here's, here's a key text. Romans 4.20 Abraham grew strong in his faith giving glory to God. Abraham grew strong in his faith and what was the nature of that strength? It gave all glory to God. When faith comes to Christ It comes destitute of any claim to be glorious or to be praised. Faith comes to Christ destitute of any claim to be glorious or to be praised. Saint, you will be glorified. Romans 8.30, those whom he justified, he glorified. And guess what? It won't be yours. It will be his. He will wrap you in it. And you will never strut with it. It will humble you to the ground that you have been made to shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. Oh, you will shine, lowly saint. Yes, you will. There will be a divine glory on you because you have come to Christ expecting no glory to come from yourself and no desert for glory in yourself. That's the first reason why the love of praise kills and makes faith hard. At the beginning, like for some of you right now, whether you're going to put your faith in Jesus and be saved the first time, and the rest of us, every day of our lives, it's hard to trust a promise to do a hard thing if the hard thing just might get a little egg on my dignified face. same issue whether it's at the beginning or 50 years later last reason the other reason for why the love of human glory is is contradictory to faith is that faith is drinking living water for the satisfaction of our souls this is this is John 4 this is John 6 35 Come to me. I'm I'm water. I'm living water. You drink from me. That's what faith is. Faith is a coming to Jesus to drink living water into our desperately thirsty souls so that our souls are rested, satisfied, comforted, deeply happy in all that God is for us in Jesus. Now when that happens, it drives out enslaving craving for the praise of man you don't need it once you have tasted this water the well of Jesus the well of all that God is in his approval in Christ who needs the approval of man anymore this is it this is a, a barometer of your faith How desperately do you crave people liking you? It's okay to want to be liked. I mean, nobody likes to be disliked. I'm talking about a craving, a needing, a control on your life. I've got to be liked. I've got to be approved. I've got to be praised. I need, I need, I need. And it's an addiction. A controlling bondage on our lives to need more praise, more statistics in our favor, more kind words, less criticism, more, 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 more. And it never satisfies. It's got a buzz to it, like drugs. It's got a buzz to it. And then it's got a hangover to it. It's the way it works. So, I close When you have tasted the beauty of God and the approval of God in Christ, the addiction of human approval is broken and you are free. So, God, come and grant right now in this room that our eyes would be open to see your glory and that taste buds on the tongue of our soul would be awakened so that we can taste how sweet the living water is, sweeter than honey, sweeter than human praise, and grant us therefore faith and set us free. May God do that for us. Father, we're all in this together. There's no no finger pointing here. We're not pointing fingers at Jews. We're not pointing fingers at unbelievers. We're not pointing fingers anywhere but in the mirror where we tend to see ourselves so much better than we are. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for putting up this word in front of us. For showing us some of the reasons why we have a hard time believing you trusting you, resting in you, and kill it. We invite you collectively. This I do. I don't know if I can speak for everybody, but all of us who who are thus minded, we invite you, do a crucifying work afresh in our lives. Take the axe of grace and the Spirit and sever the root of our love affair with the praise of man that we may believe and glorify you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.